Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture in order. This is the Academy Archives, and this week we're discussing Academy Award-nominated film Birdman of Alcatraz and the history of women in editing. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's our producer, Kayla. Howdy! Welcome! Hello, hello! We're here with another show. Yeah, an archival episode this time. Yeah, and we've got some uh, cool stuff for you. Yeah, I'm interested to see how this goes today because it's a little different on both of our ends. Yeah, uh, but first we will bring you some interesting facts. Mm-hmm. Do you have an interesting fact for us, Kristen? I do, I do. So today for my section, I will be talking about women in editing, uh, film editing specifically. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, doing my research for that. And one of the funny things that I came across is the fact that many editors get more involved in the film than just their editing responsibilities, often because uh, film productions run on very tight schedules and uh, there's a lot that needs to happen in order to make a film work. And by the time things get to the editing room, They are really only doing a few reshoots, that kind of thing, that are necessary because of what the editor sees. So sometimes there are additional things needed that the editors fill in for, specifically uh, like extra voices and like stuff like that. And so I found this funny quote from Brant Burgoyne, who edited Legally Blonde, which is one of the greatest Mm -hmm. masterpieces of all time. And she says how fun it was for her to edit that film specifically. But sometimes, quote, they even get to perform lines and I got to contribute my voice to a classroom scene. Oh, Her voice can be heard in the classroom scene in Legally Blonde. And also she had to be an angry driver that like shouts oh. at her as they drove by. Huh. That's funny. So that's something, you know, little uh, secret. People audition and audition and audition to get little one-liners and here sometimes the editors get to sneak in and do it themselves well i'm sure it's much easier while you're editing and just to be like oh we need some like off camera right like noise or somebody to just like say this one thing okay let me just say it real quick yeah or even just like the scene is really unclear we just need someone to like quickly say something yeah, the amount of time and effort and money that it would take to like to reshoot something cast is one person to like say that one line. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's a roundabout way to sneak into the industry. Who uh, knows? You're <laughs> Probably <people> not. Ideas. <laughs> well, my interesting fact uh, comes from the year of 1962, um, and it is about the movie King Kong versus Godzilla. Okay. So that movie came out in 1962. It happens to be the first appearance of both characters in color. Ha ha ha. So, of course, both characters have existed for a while up to this point, uh, but it is the first time we see either of them in color. And unfortunately, it sort of turned Godzilla from being like, because originally Godzilla and King Kong were sort of like horror characters. Okay. Um, But their first appearance in color showed what they really looked like in all their glory. Yeah. And it made this film become very, like, campy, Uh more so what we know of Godzilla (laughs) today. Uh, Because Godzilla was gray. Oh, in the the color? In all of it. He was, like, the the big thing that they used, the big puppet Uh or whatever, was gray. And, like, they just used the same one. Oh, you're talking about during the black and white films. They just yes. used well, the same gray puppet over and over. Oh, I yes. see. Yes, uh-huh. and then they used it again for the color film. 
Oh, they didn't like revamp him and give him a little color or anything. Right. They I didn't see. give him a new look. And so everybody saw him and they were like, oh, he's just like this weird looking like gray lizard. Okay. He's, he's not, not so scary, scary anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so just a funny little thing. That's kind of why we have uh, Camp Godzilla today. All right. Well, shall we get to it? Yeah, let's do it. So today I will be talking about the film Birdman of Alcatraz. First, a little recap, just because people probably don't know much about this. Robert Stroud is sentenced to prison after killing a man during a fight in Alaska. He's transported to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. There, he meets the warden, Harvey Shoemaker, and they begin their long and tumultuous prisoner-warden relationship. When Stroud learns that his mother was not granted a visitation, he attacks a guard and, in his rage, kills him. He's sentenced to death, but with the help of his mother, gets his sentence commuted to life in prison, serving the entire sentence in solitary confinement. After a storm, Stroud finds a downed nest with a baby bird in it and takes it in to nurse it back to health. For years, the prison allows him to keep hundreds of birds in his cell as he studies them, discovering new bird diseases and cures, and writing a comprehensive manual on caring for birds, especially for canaries. He is transferred to Alcatraz after the new federal prison system takes over Leavenworth, and he is no longer allowed to keep and care for birds. During his first few years at Alcatraz, he writes a new book on the history of the penal system in America, a scathing expose of the failings of the prison and criminal justice systems. Near the end of his life, he's transferred to a more relaxed prison in Missouri, where he spends his last few years. All right. Wow. Yeah. So this is an interesting one, um, starring, of course, Burt Lancaster. Mm -hmm. Very fun. This film had a budget of $2.6 million. Um, I could not find how much this film made, which is weird. Um, it was pretty like popular for the time, but it was not in the top 10 of the box office for gotcha. this year. It just happened to be one of those random ones that got some acclaim, but not yeah. a whole lot of popularity. Sure. I mean, that's the way to do it these days, usually, too. So the reason I decided to watch this film uh, is because Burnt Lancaster is nominated for Best Actor, among other awards that this film is nominated for. Um, and he has a really interesting performance in this. Um, and I'll get into it as I go on. But a lot of people think that he really should have been the one to win this award rather than Gregory Peck this okay. year. Wow. Yeah. Well, and I mean, just to clarify, because we talked about this a little bit during our Academy Awards ceremony episode for mm -hmm. the 35th Academy Awards. I haven't seen uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in a long time. And my memory of it as I have recently learned, is different than the actuality of it. Because I was a young child when I saw it, and I have learned and grown. And it's interesting to look back on these performances where, you know, I like we have thought of Gregory Peck as being just, like, amazing in that movie. And maybe he is, and maybe he's not, you know? Well, and you can still be considered... Like, his performance can still be considered good. Right. Whether or not, like, the film is still considered, like really politically correct or something yeah for sure but I also am interested in hearing about this today because like I don't know anything about this movie so the only thing I knew from this year was Peter O'Toole is in Lawrence of Arabia and Gregory Peck is in To Kill a Mockingbird and of the two styles of those movies I know which one I like better <laughs> the uh camel loving Peter O'Toole uh, oh yeah mm-hmm so let's get into this film. Uh, this film is a slightly fictionalized version of the life of Robert Stroud, who happens to be 
one of the most famous inmates of Alcatraz, known as the Birdman of Alcatraz. Um, he was also known as the Birdman of Leavenworth because he was at Leavenworth. Sounds like he should be a horror character. Well, and also what's weird is he didn't have any birds once he was at Alcatraz. So I don't know why. I mean, I yeah. guess people started calling him that he when he got there. He was already the Birdman yeah. and then he happened to be at Alcatraz. Yeah. Just a little bit of his background um, because there's some differences in the plot of the film to him okay. as a person. He was imprisoned at the age of 19, and there's some weird conflicting things about his initial murder. So the the main theory is that he was a pimp in Alaska, and one of his mistresses uh, was attacked by somebody. The thing that there's controversy about is whether or not he was like helping to manage her sex work career, or if they were in a relationship together, or okay. both, or whatever. So... Just so you know, there's lots of conflicting stories. So once she was attacked by this person, he shot them at point blank range, killing them. Um, He was sentenced to 12 years in prison, uh, but because of bad behavior and outbursts, (laughs) uh, kept having time added to his sentence. I don't think I've ever heard that before. You always hear like, they're released early for good behavior. And it's like, of course. Yeah. No, stuck. Bad behavior. Yeah. He was then transferred from a prison near Seattle to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas to finish his sentence there until he stabbed a guard over a feud about visitation rights, killing the guard and being sentenced to death by hanging for the charge of first degree murder. My goodness. He obviously has a lot of issues. Yeah. Especially in the first stretch of his time in prison. Um, He really had no like will to live no yeah. will to get better or well, and it seems like there's no rehabilitation happening no on the definitely part of the state <laughs> no so eight days before his sentence was carried out his mother appealed to president woodrow wilson and his sentence was commuted to life in prison in solitary confinement it's always the moms um so since his original sentence was or like right before this second murder he was in solitary confinement mm-hmm. um Woodrow Wilson just said, just keep him in solitary confinement or whoever it was, the person at the DOJ or whatever. After a few years in Leavenworth, he found three injured sparrows in the exercise yard and nursed them back to health in his cell. Um, He began to study birds extensively, especially canaries, and at one point had over 300 canaries living with him in his cell. Oh my gosh. Why did no one stop that? I mean, that's insane. 300 canaries? I mean, yeah, it's very weird that this was just allowed allowed to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get that. Uh, I didn't do a lot of like in-depth research about the prison system. But apparently at the time, and they talk about this in the movie too, and I just saw a random thing, like a lot of prisoners were given like smuggled in pets during this time in like prison history yeah um so maybe that's the reason why like oh he just has some birds and then some birds became many many birds (laughs) (laughs) and that's honestly one of the like the plot points of the film is that his birds just are like procreating like crazy (laughs) that's just like the best way to explain away a situation some birds became many birds. Yeah. <laughs> um, he even at one point, because of all of this, they like he got connected to all these major bird societies in America and <laughs> other inmates and some of the guards would smuggle out papers that he was like scientific papers that he was Aww. writing on his discoveries. Yeah. And then there was this whole system of them like bringing him materials and supplies and smuggling in like 
uh, chemicals for him to study like on medicines to treat birds and because a lot of the birds started getting weird diseases because there were like 300 300 in prison yeah Yeah. um so at one point they even blasted through his cell wall so that he had a full double cell because he had so (laughs) many birds that they they... blasted for the birds yeah oh my heavens what on earth so he's like one of the only prisoners ever on record in America that was given the space of two cells. Oh my, what? So, very strange. No wonder they wanted to make a movie about this. I mean, yeah. I'm super interested. Um, so, after years of this, uh, guards finally grew tired of his antics and tried to get him transferred. Stroud then discovered a strange Kansas law that allowed the marriage of individuals through a signed document alone and another law prohibiting the transfer of prisoners out of state if they were married to someone in state. So he arranged this with uh, a woman who liked his articles. All right. (laughs) Um, His mother was horrified by this and then began a campaign against his parole. (laughs) (laughs) So she keeps him alive. She petitions the president, and then she's like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, she hated this. In the movie, they sort of explain this because... His first, like, instance of murder was surrounding this woman. Sure. And so in the movie, she's kind of like, well, this other woman in your life caused you to be in prison. And now you're stuck with this next woman. And I don't like it. She, All right. I don't know. It was a weird plot point in you the movie. You know what? Moms do what moms do sometimes. Yeah. He kept out of trouble for several more years until it was discovered he was distilling alcohol in his cell with some of the lab equipment he was using for his ornithology. Um, Because of this, he was... Yeah. So because of this, he was transferred to Alcatraz and prohibited from taking or keeping any of his birds, his equipment, or his research. Wouldn't you think that would make a person lose it? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Because, like, if that is his purpose for living and his passion and you just rip it away, of course he's going to lose it. So after 17 years then in Alcatraz, he was transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, where he then died four years after that. So he died in 1963, actually after this movie came out, at the age of 73, having spent 54 years of his life in prison, 42 in solitary confinement. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And a couple decades of that 42 with birds. (laughs) So not alone. (laughs) Uh, So author Thomas Gaddis decided to write a book titled The Birdman of Alcatraz about Stroud's life and accomplishments that uh, helped to gain him a lot of popularity during Mm -hmm. this time, especially outside of the bird community in America, because he was already already well known in the bird community. (laughs) Oh, and I should mention that Gaddis did not ever meet him, which Hmm. is interesting. He was never granted rights to visit him Hmm. um they just didn't have any kind of prior relationship or anything so there was no reason for him to be granted a visitation so because of his popularity strouds the u.s bureau of prisons tried to stop any film version of the story of the like based on the biography Mm -hmm. uh, which caused the rights for this and the production to change hands several times until it came to harold hecht and burt lancaster so remember, they have a deal currently with United Artists. Oh, yes, I'm aware. Yeah, so they recently uh, produced Marty. Yes, which is a great film. 
and we love what Burt Lancaster's doing for the industry. Yeah, uh, so they get a hold of it, uh, their production company, and Harold Hecht really likes the idea of producing it, and um, he asks Lancaster if he wants to help produce. Lancaster reads the story and says, "I also want to act in the picture as well." And then he agreed to take over like full creative control of the picture, something he really hadn't done up to this point. But remember, something he really wanted to do. Right. Because we talked about him during Marty. Right. And how much he wanted to just like do it all, you know? Yeah. I mean, artists through and through, that kind of a thing. And it's exciting to me that this is like such a weird story and it speaks to him because when you think of Burt Lancaster, you think of like hunky kind of cowboy yeah it was a really interesting role for him yeah and i'm guessing that he did some other roles like this that i just haven't seen yeah and that like weren't as very as popular Mm -hmm. um because you think of i think somebody who's similar to him in a lot of ways in modern times is brad pitt where he's like considered Mm, like a really hunky person he does some really popular stuff but he really wants to be involved in all aspects of filmmaking yeah he really wants to do the tree of life Yeah. (laughs) And he really wants to be a producer. He wants to do all of this stuff. He has a production company. He knows exactly where to throw his money to win Best Picture awards. Over and over and over again. But there are so many random ones that he's done, like Burt Lancaster, where it's just like these random art pieces kind of. Yeah. Anyways. Respect the game. Yeah. So he basically oversaw a lot of the casting. Um, He helped put together the creative team responsible for the picture. Unfortunately, they had problems with the first director that they hired, Charles Crichton. So he ended up getting fired, Crichton, and Lancaster asked director John Frankenheimer to join the team since they had just worked on a previous film together. Frankenheimer later regretted coming to the film so late uh, because the film had already been started at that point and all the creative decisions had been made outside of his control, uh, which would cause problems later. (laughs) So two men from Japan were brought in to train the birds used in the film, uh, which turned out to be very troublesome. I can imagine. I can imagine. There are so many birds in this film. (laughs) Um, They said some days the birds were just like perfect, needing only a couple of takes to do exactly what they were trying to get them to do. Other days, like the birds, apparently the small birds that they were using, canaries and sparrows and stuff, you can train them, but sometimes they can just like not be trained for some reason. I mean, their brain is like the size of a pea. Yeah. (laughs) So like, I don't blame them for that. (laughs) So other days it would take like the whole day to film like the simplest thing of like, they just wanted a shot of the bird, like jumping from the ground up to Burt Lancaster. I mean, think about like child actors. Yeah. Child actors are fully developed humans with full brains and some days they are on it and sometimes you can't get them to do anything. So some of these days they basically were like retraining the bird over and over and over and over to try to get it to do this thing and the birds would get really bored and like also like i don't know not be hungry anymore or like whatever (laughs) they were trying to do to get the bird to do the thing it didn't want to do it uh so that was a troublesome thing i love just like imagining people really trying to make this cool movie and they're just like the birds we can't get the birds to do it well and a funny thing is that frankenheimer he was supposed to direct this story for television then they decided against it because of the amount of birds that they would need and like their Mm -hmm. budget for the 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 television show or whatever it was going to be a special was not big enough to cover like the contingencies of birds (laughs) 
So uh, the author of the biography, Thomas Gaddis, he was brought in and he was meant to be on set to advise the accuracy of the film, even though, of course, he never actually met Stroud before. But he was not happy with being on set or with the hours. Uh, so after six months, he left the picture. Then moving on to the troubles with the directing. Uh, after the film was completed, the rough cut came out to around four hours. Um, and rather than edit that to oh, no. be a normal oh, no. thing, everyone agreed that it should mostly be reshot. What? So they shot the original film before he even did Judgment at Nuremberg. What? So then he went and did Judgment at Nuremberg. What? <laughs> Burt Lancaster. Then they came back and they were like, all right, now let's reshoot it. Frankenheimer had a lot more control. He like did oh a big plan for everything. He changed a lot of random stuff around so that he felt like it was his film. And now it's really hard to track how much of the original film was used and how much of the like second film they made was used. Oh my gosh. But they do know that some of the original film is still in the, okay. the final cut. I mean, to me, this sounds like a creative differences issue more than a... Yeah. It's too long. How are we going to edit it down issue? Yeah. Um, so the final film ended up being about two and a half hours and they tested it and it tested really well with audiences. So that's what they went with. But Lancaster was really, really happy with the film. Um, he really liked it and people really liked him in it. Um, one thing he really connected, like you said, with the story. Uh, so one interesting quote of his about the role, he said, one of the problems an actor faces, and it's a very dangerous thing, is to get so involved in a role he loses control of what he is doing. With Birdman of Alcatraz, I couldn't stop crying throughout the film. I mean, if there was a line when someone said, sorry, Stroud, you can't have your parole, I'd burst into tears. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so during his press tour for the movie, he consistently held to the view that Stroud should be released. Um, that's kind of one of huh. the big questions of the film. Yeah. Um, he believed that he had proven he'd been rehabilitated, which is like a through line of the story. Yeah. Um, Stroud had been denied parole 23 times during his sentence. Man. You know, it's so depressing to think that we're still having this discussion now about yeah. rehabilitation in prison and parole and re releasing people and these kinds of things. And honestly, I mean, it's sad because this movie says something that I think a lot of people believe too, which is that animals are really great for rehabilitation too, mm -hmm. for well, nonviolent offenders and that kind of and thing. And a lot too. of the conversation was like at one point in the movie, there's a scene with like a, a high up bird scientist or something who comes, yeah. who's trying to plead his case. And they do like this huge um, uh, thing in the bird community where they get like over 50,000 signatures. And oh this actually goodness. happened like to petition his parole. Wow. But they're kind of like, well, he committed murder. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the bird guy, the scientist, he's like, well, I'm not saying he should be released out in the public, like, but he should be given opportunity to like be a scientist. And, and to like, be a human. He was like, if he was out not in prison, he would be getting thousands and thousands of dollars in grant money to oh, yeah. like help cure bird disease. Yeah. But like because he has this mark on him, like he's deemed like unworthy to contribute to society. That's such an interesting question, too. Yeah. Like people who are so skilled and talented, but do a horrible thing. Well, and then one of the conversations that Lancaster has many times with the warden who was at Leavenworth and then he also went to Alcatraz. So he was with him at both oh, wow. prisons was like, you know, I, I want to rehabilitate. 
now in my old age, I'm not who I used to be anymore. Yeah. And the warden is like, well, there's lots of jobs you can do. And he's like, well, like I can like use a drill press, like, or I could be studying and curing birds. Like not that saying is one is more valuable, but the prison system is saying one is more valuable that Mm -hmm. like the prisoners are only allowed to do hard manual labor that breaks them. And he's like, well, why can't I, like, why is this not considered valuable for prisoners to do? So. Mm, Making me sad. Yeah. So it's a really interesting and like, it's a good story. And whether or not it really follows the true life thing of him, a lot of people say like, well, he was a lot more gruff throughout his whole prison sentence. Um, But it, it asks a lot of questions of like, you know, why should prisoners not be treated like people or why can they not be seen as smart or as able to contribute to society in those ways? So it's good. It's worth watching. I think it holds up. It's a little long. It's also presented in sort of a documentary-esque thing. Like there's a lot of narration. Gotcha. Which is probably why it hasn't survived as well. Like if it was more so just a biopic, Uh, like Mm -hmm. I think it would do better in modern day time. Yeah. But uh, so just to talk about how uh, critically acclaimed it was at the time, um, it was not nearly as popular as United Artists hoped it would be, uh, but it was nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Actor for Burt Lancaster, Best Supporting Actor for Telly Savalas, who was one of the other prisoners, uh, Best Supporting Actress for Thelma Ritter, who played his mother, and Best Cinematography Black and White. Uh, Burton went on to win Best Foreign Actor for the role at the BAFTAs and Best Actor at the Venice International Film Festival. Wow. And Frankenheimer also won the San Giorgio Prize, which is the Best Director equivalent at the Venice International Film Festival. Wow. So it was really, like, highly praised yeah, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I mentioned before, some historians now believe that Lancaster probably should have been given the Best Actor Oscar. But now they think that it probably went to Peck purely for political reasons as yeah. a way to appease the social justice groups yeah as hollywood's way to be like see look we're uh, promoting what's <laughs> happening in the country right now we're giving an academy award to the white man in the movie about black issues yeah <laughs> another flaw that historians also talk about because of this is the fact that um elmer bernstein's score for to kill a mockingbird was nominated rather than his score for birdman of alcatraz oh hmm so he did get a nomination but they think that it should have been the other film. Gotcha. Probably another uh, yeah. political thing. Anyways, that is the story of this film. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, everyone so should uh, watch this. It's fun. <laughs> so after that, uh, what do you have for us today, Kristen? Yeah, so today I wanted to talk about specifically women who are in film editing. Cool. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to do this was for the, I've wanted to do this category for a, a long time, you know, I, yeah. because there are some remarkable women who paved the way as technical engineers, specifically in film editing, which is like one of the few categories throughout the history of the Academy Awards that women have been present in. Mm-hmm. That is a non-acting category, um, except for costume design, mm-hmm. which of course is a more female-dominated position. Um, but I wanted to talk about this because uh, this year at the 35th Academy Awards, which we just talked about, Anne V. Coates wins Best Editing for the film Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And so because she won this year, I thought it was a good time to kind of jump into this stuff. I'll talk a little bit about her, but also just about... The women who paved the way for film editing, some of their erasure throughout history up until, honestly, more recent years. 
So first of all, Anvie Coates uh, wins this Academy Award in 1965, and she had a pretty illustrious career. She thrived um, as a top editor during a time when women were not at the forefront of the editing industry at the time. There were a few standouts, but it was still mostly a male-dominated industry. I just couldn't believe this. As of 2004, women are only accounted for 16% of all editors working on the top 250 films. Oh, wow. Yeah. 80% of films have no women on their teams at all. Wow. Which is just really crazy. Um, I mean, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of the way the film industry works in some areas. But um, it's sad to me because there were so many standouts. Um, I found this really cool project by Sue Friedrich. I found out about this because there's a a Criterion article about it, which then led me to this project, which I thought was really cool. Um, It's called Edited By, and it's a resource online that you can go to that shows all of the films that have been edited by women and their contributions Hmm. and their careers and all that kind of stuff, Um, mostly because a lot of the greatest films of all time have been edited by women, Mm -hmm. um, but are not really credited with being quote women's films or accredited because Mm. a lot of the times directors take credit for the final product right right Um, but a lot of the final product is reliant on the way in which it is edited Mm -hmm. Um, and those people tend to get erased when the motion pictures editors guide released their uh, list of the 75 best edited films of all time uh, in 2012 Four of the top eight films were edited by women, Hmm. including Raging Bull, which was 1980, Thelma Schoonmaker, Bonnie and Clyde in 1967 by Dee Dee Allen, Lawrence of Arabia, 1962 by Anne B. Coates, and Jaws, 1975 by Verna Fields. Hmm. So just to get into a little history about uh, Anne V. Coates first, since she's the one who has prompted us today. She uh, won the Academy Award at the 35th Academy Awards. She was born on December 12th, 1925 in Surrey, England. She loved horses uh, and she was working as a plastic surgeon before she decided she wanted to become a film editor. Huh, that's a weird pivot. She was just doing her thing. But here's what happens. She goes to the movies to see Wuthering Heights by William Wyler. And she just falls in love with everything about it. Not just the movie, the cinema, Hollywood, the industry, everything. Not the like acting side, though, which is the way I feel like a lot of people go. She just loved filmmaking. Huh, interesting. It's funny how that happens. Like people like Steven Spielberg or Scorsese, they like go and see a film and they're like, I don't want to be in it. I want to make that. Yeah, which feels so foreign, especially to me sometimes because like, you know, I've never wanted that. But like now we have so many friends who that is their passion. And it's like really cool and inspiring to me uh, because I don't know how to do that kind of stuff. (laughs) Um, So she pursued this interest by beginning work as an assistant at a religious films production company. Hmm. Um, She would take... Uh, like film prints of short films and then cut them and send them to different British churches. This splicing work, which was pretty new at the time, uh, led to a very rare job as an assistant film editor at Pinewood Studios, which was in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just like allowed her to make all kinds of connections in the industry. Hmm. So, you know, after a certain amount of time, you know, she grows in rank and she you know, is now working internationally and that kind of thing, because a lot of, you know, what was happening in London did cater to American audiences. And, you know, mm. there was a lot of crossover, yeah. especially once the Academy Awards started. And so skipping ahead some time, because she works on lots and lots of things, uh, she meets director David Lean, and she begins work on Lawrence of Arabia. Hmm. 
Uh, so she was primarily only like London based. Uh, for the beginning of her life. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And then of course, once like Hollywood is really booming, she moves to America and okay. she begins work at some of the major studios over here. Gotcha. So I just wanted to kind of like talk about her work on Lawrence of Arabia. If you haven't seen this movie, it's beautiful. And it is mostly due to the cinematography and then the way in which that cinematography is used, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. the way it's edited. Yeah. Um, and people really do recognize this. It's like one of the most like well-recognized films for its editing because of the way that she's able to capture the beauty and the like excitement and the like epicness of the film, but also the acting performances and the story. And it's really interesting because it's a really long film and it's not boring. Mm-hmm. Like... I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Like it should feel very boring. Yeah. But you're watching it and it's just so beautiful. Right. And like the pacing is really nice. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't like drag in any places. Yeah. And it's hard to like describe that when you're a person who is not on like the technical side of things. Yeah. But it's all due to the editing. And- yeah, definitely. One of the scenes that is most acclaimed now um, and was at the time as well. Uh, that I was, I didn't even realize that this is why it's a good moment, but it's because of her. Um, so she's totally responsible for the scene. It's like called like the match scene, but um, Lawrence of Arabia, Peter O'Toole's character, um, he's holding a burning match really close to his face. And just as it burns down, he blows it out. And as soon as like he snuffs it, the camera cuts to a very searing image of the sunrise. Oh, so hmm. it's like, you know, one of those yeah. like beautiful moments where it's like dark to light, like same colors, but like it's like one of those like pivotal storytelling moments. And none of that was in the script. Mm. That is something that she just pieced together because, of course, they film him blowing out the match. They have lots of images of the sunrise, but she edits it in this very artistic way mm. that makes it not only just like a striking moment, but part of the story. Mm hmm. To like hmm. kind of get the audience ready for what's going to happen. Yeah, very cool. So just very cool. This is a quote from her. An editor's first responsibility is certainly to the story, followed closely by the director, but not at all by the audience. You must have the courage of your convictions. The directors are sometimes so close, they just don't see it. Mm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I think that's true. I mean, of the editors I was learning about for today, that seems to be their strength mm. is this ability to kind of figure out not only what the director was trying to accomplish by filming the way he filmed things or she filmed things, but the way in which the actors are working in order to contribute to the story, focusing on their emotional arcs and then, you know, creating something that works on all levels and is a synthesis of everybody's work together, Mm -hmm. which I think is just so visionary and really hard to do. Well, and it's also crazy because like a lot of people in the industry say that like, the movie or the product is made three times. So Uh like the first time is when the writer writes the script Mm -hmm. because you have to have a script if you're going to shoot something. Then the second time is when the director and the actors and the cinematographer shoot the thing. Mm -hmm. And then the third time is when the editor edits it. Yes. And a lot of times in like just the general public, nobody talks about editing or cares about editing at all. But it's like as important as those other two steps. Yeah, it doesn't happen without those other two steps. Yeah. This is another quote from her about just her style. She said, I seem to get a rhythm for the performances. I like to feel I'm very much an actor's editor. I look very much to the performances and cut very much for the performances rather than the action. I think that's important. What's in the eyes of the actor? Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, too. Yeah. It's like was really interesting to me to read about 
people's way of doing this because that seems to be the general consensus. Mm. And I can't imagine watching hours and hours of takes and film and all this stuff of people doing things and being able to parcel out what works and like the best way to tell a story based on what the actors were trying to do. Yeah, it's such an amazing skill set that yeah. like... I have of, no comprehension. I know, of. <laughs> and also it's kind of scary. Like, yeah, you're trusting someone to put your best performance forward if you're an actor. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why they're the professionals at that job <laughs> and not at acting. <laughs> we all need each other. Uh, so, just to kind of wrap up about her first, um, she was nominated five times for the Academy Awards, um, and she won once. Uh, she also received an honorary award for her lifetime achievement in oh, 2017. Wow. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, she had a really long and varied career. Um, she edited films up until the end of her life. Wow. Some of them are Out of Sight, uh, Aaron Brockovich, oh. The Golden Compass, Striptease, The Elephant Man, the rom-com Catch and Release. Mm. Her final film, <laughs> and I don't know that this is encapsulating of everything, or maybe it is. Her final film was Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. Whoa. That's so weird. Yes. <laughs> You know, she has been nominated and won many different awards on the British stage as well as the American stage. Um, She was a member of the Guild of British Film and Television Editors and the American Cinema Editors. Um, And she, you know, has received lots of accolades from both of those. Hmm. And so I just wanted to close out this little part of my section with one more quote from her. She says, quote, you have to have the courage of your convictions. When you're editing, you have to make thousands of decisions every day. And if you did there over them all the time, you'll never get anything done. Mm. Hmm. Which Interesting. I think is a good way to kind of sum up her way of living. You know, you can't yeah. dither around. <laughs> <laughs> so just to expand this topic a little bit farther than just Ann Coates, there are lots of really prominent women throughout editing history that have paved the way. Um, but unfortunately, many of them have been under-researched by film historians. Mm. Um, and I was trying to figure out why. There are several really great books. One of them is uh, Women Film Editors, Unseen Artists of the American Cinema by David Mule. Um, there's also lots of great articles on like you know women's history and stuff like that that kind of reference specifically that book. Um, and also Sue Friedrich's research done mm. for Edited by that project as well. But one of the things that they said was, quote, Primarily because of the mighty influence of auteurism, which has profoundly shaped the study of Hollywood in the last half century. By centering directors, film history has tended to marginalize other creative artists in Hollywood, including editors. Hmm. Sue Friedrich said about this, quote, it's time to stop imagining that it's really the director, and she says that in quotes, who does the editing. Um, this neglect applies to both male and female editors, but it has had a special impact on the latter by including the fact that women have a rich but little known history as editors, especially in American cinema. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that I haven't really thought of, that, like, the director is just seen as such a high art form. Yeah. Um, I mean, primarily because of people like Coppola and mm-hmm. Kubrick and, mm-hmm. like, literally the era that we're about to come on to. I know. I'm not looking forward to it. I got to tell you. <laughs> Which then, of course, leads to, like, Scorsese mm-hmm. and, yeah, it, I haven't really thought of that. It'll be interesting to get through that time in history. And, yeah. Like, but it is weird that the director of all of the positions is just so highly praised mm-hmm. when they're just one of many. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And, and it does marginalize not only a lot of women and mm-hmm. minorities that are working on these films, but a lot of positions that are very important as well. Yeah. 
So just to kind of give a little bit of history, um, this comes from uh, David Mule's book. He points out that film editing work in the silent era was very, very tedious oh, because yeah, people <laughs> needed to go through huge quantities of film footage and it was very, very low paying as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was considered menial and monotonous work, um, it was kind of compared to knitting or sewing. Oh. Um, and so it was very common for young women with no professional training to be hired as cutters for film oh, companies. Sure. Mm-hmm. Huh. Uh, so the the term editor uh, comes from, it actually <laughs> comes from Irving G. Thalberg. Oh. So during the era of like the original studios and the founding and all that kind of stuff, male figures like D.W. Griffith um, began to start emphasizing the editing function of uh, creating films. Um, they began to develop new techniques like cross-cutting and this idea of what filmmaking was went under a little bit of a transformation. Mm. Um, so people were no longer simply cutting film and putting it together. There was this idea of editing and it was actually coined by Irving G. Thalberg about Margaret Booth and her work. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Because he began to see her not as a, quote, cutter, but as an editor, as someone who was seeing the vision and putting it together and making it beautiful. Huh, very cool. Yeah. So the very first ever woman editor was Anna McKnight, who's also called Anne McKnight. I didn't, I couldn't figure out which one she preferred because she's referred to as both. Hmm. Uh, she worked during the silent era film from the 1910s to the 1930s. But Viola Lawrence is considered the first woman editor in Hollywood. Hmm. Um, she was working right at the same time. In 1915, she became technically the second female film cutter in history um, after Anna. Uh, they both worked at Vitagraph during that time. But Viola Lawrence is her like main contribution, not besides just being one of the first people to pave the way. She is considered the influence for Orson Welles to go back and shoot close-ups that were needed for the Lady of Shanghai in oh, 1947. Interesting. Which becomes the hallmark for his acclaimed film, Citizen Kane. So the first woman to win an Oscar for editing was Anne Boschens in 1940 for the film Northwest Mounted Police. She was also the very first woman to be nominated for an editing Oscar as well in Mm. 1934 for Cleopatra. And that was the first year that the award was established. Oh, cool. Yeah. So right from the gate, we've got a woman who is, you know, competing. Wow. Nice. Uh, She worked for about four decades alongside Cecil B. DeMille. Specifically, her most acclaimed work is The Ten Commandments. Uh She is the editor on that film. Um, (laughs) While they filmed that, DeMille used as many as 12 cameras for some scenes, producing in total over 100,000 feet of film. Oh, my gosh. And it came down to her to put it together. Wow. Um, in, In an eighth of the total that she had been given. Yeah. Which is insane. And of course, it was like even more complicated because there were many mat shots, many action sequences. I mean, it's a very difficult film to put together, not just because of the amount of film, but because of the scope of the film. Yeah. And all of the special effects yes. and all of that. Mm-hmm. After the fact, uh, he said about her work, he called it, quote, the most difficult operation of editing in motion picture history, <laughs> <laughs> which I I don't doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So moving right along, the most nominated female editor in history is Barbara McLean, who won for Wilson in 1944, and she has received seven nominations for her work from 1935 to 1950. Unfortunately, she only had one win, but one of the things that's important to point out about a lot of these women throughout history is the fact that they became really close confidants for a lot of directors Mm. um, who were really, you know worried about their film, nervous, not sure what they were doing. Um, Mm -hmm. She is known for being uh, Daryl F. Zanuck's most trusted confidant in not just editing matters, but everyday matters and in his filmmaking work as well. 
Also, she is responsible for editing one of my favorite films we've watched so far, mm. All About Eve. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Nice. So her work is really influential. And if you talk to anyone who is interested in women in editing, she's one of the people who is a standout, mm. not just for her work, but for her contributions that went unnoticed. Right. Um, so another person to point out is Dorothy Arzner, who was the only woman director to work for a major Hollywood studios from the 1920s to the 1940s. Uh, she spent seven years as an editor of silent films, and she is known because she hired a huge team of women to edit 10 of the 17 films that she directed. Oh, wow. Because she really wanted to like pass that along and mm-hmm. create more space, huh. which as you know, I think we all know, you need people like her in order to get to the top, but then to go back and pave the way and create more opportunities for more people to come along. Mm-hmm. And so she is really responsible for opening that up throughout the 30s and 40s when you know, people were becoming editors. And as soon as it became an established position that was more like lauded and it had an Academy Award, it became male dominated Mm -hmm. when it's no longer just women cutting film strips and seen as menial work. Mm -hmm. It, you know, women lost their place. Yeah. So that brings us to Margaret Booth, who is one of the most powerful editors during the time. Studio era Hollywood. Um, So she is over at MGM. And she is really close with Louis B. Mayer. Mm -hmm. Uh, She is known as kind of the same way that Barbara McLean was for Daryl F. Zanuck. She worked really closely with Louis B. Mayer, not just about like editing, but also on rushes, on reshoots, on what they needed to do to make films work. Mm. Um, She never received a competitive Oscar, but she did win an honorary Oscar for, quote, exceptional contributions to the art of film editing in the motion picture industry at the 50th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony in 1978. Mm. She worked on over 44 films. And she did receive a nomination for her work on Mutiny on the Bounty. But she started working back in 1915 for D.W. Griffith as a negative cutter. Hmm. Uh, When he closed his office, she stayed in L.A. and she went over to MGM working for Louis V. Mayer and Irving G. Thalberg. Of course, as I mentioned, she's the one that Irving G. Thalberg coined the term editor about because Uh, of her work and her contributions. Uh, Another thing that's really important to note about, you know, this time in history is that there are a lot of women whose names got substituted by male editors Uh, during the time. mm -hmm. One of the ones that I could find was Jolanda Benvenuti, who edited almost all of Robert Rossellini's films. uh, But her name was substituted by a male editor in the credits for both Rome Open City in 1945 and Parisian in 1946, which leads me to believe that that's probably not the only case of that happening. Yeah. So that's kind of what I wanted to share about this time period, um, about some of those people who really did pave the way and make it possible. Mm -hmm. Of course, now there are more people who have opened up to female editors working with them. One of the more recent examples is Sally Menke, who edited all of Quentin Tarantino's films from Reservoir Dogs to Inglorious Bastards. She was hired, um, and he talks about this in one of his interviews, because he wanted a woman who would, quote, nurture both him and his movie rather than shove their agenda or win their battles with me, quote, Mm. which I wanted to share because, um, and this is a quote from the Criterion article I was reading that, quote, it's a telling statement that underscores both the gender normative views that continue to prevail in Hollywood and the competitive masculinism that underpins the mythology of the auteur. Yeah. And I mean, to me, that quote from him is very distressing. Yeah. I mean, he's a distressing person in general, but (laughs) it shows me that he doesn't respect women as their own person. Um, And I'm glad that he has her on his team. And I'm glad that she's given this opportunity to use her expertise and create these great films. But it's another instance of men seeing women as these people who can 
be motherly to them and nurture them and take care of them and not as the dynamic and powerful creators that they are. Mm-hmm. Also, additionally, uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, who has uh, won uh, Academy Awards, um, she works with Martin Scorsese. Uh, she re- most recently worked on The Irishman, and she has received eight Oscar nominations for her work now. She now currently is the most nominated female editor. She also stands alongside Michael Kahn, Daniel Mandel, and Ralph Dawson in winning the most Academy Awards in Best Editing with three. Wow, good for yeah. her. And she's worked with Scorsese for over 50 years. Um, and she is kind of responsible for <laughs> specifically holding the lawn steady cam shots in Goodfellas, the Irishman, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. And she is known for being able to create urgency mm. in her editing style. That's a relationship, like creative relationship in Hollywood where like he could not make his films without her. Absolutely not. And like a lot of people what that would say like oh the scorsese like style or vision or whatever like it is the two of them combined yeah that create those films yeah. and make them what they are like visually and like pacing the wise pacing, yeah. the tone mm-hmm. all of that yeah absolutely you i and i think that before i was really really digging into this i just didn't realize mm-hmm. how much of what we see on the screen is due to what editors are giving you to see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyways, just to kind of wrap this up, um, this is one of the few female dominated films in terms of like great standouts, mm. not in terms of amount of people working in the field, mm-hmm. but women tend to prevail in this area. A lot of the films that you know and love, um, Bonnie and Clyde, The Breakfast Club, Jaws, American Graffiti, E.T., Star Wars, I mean, these films are edited by women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, that's really cool. That's really remarkable. And as of now, 15 women have won best editing out of the 94 ceremonies that have existed, hmm. which sounds sad. I know it's a low percentage, but you have to think of how difficult that was. And for how many years and years and years, women weren't nominated at all and weren't mm-hmm. considered and how hard it is to break into that industry. So. Well, and the first female producer to be recognized didn't even happen until the 70s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, so I was looking at Only one of those like... Only three female directors ever <laughs> have won. Yeah. I was looking at the stats page of, you know, women in the Academy Awards uh-huh. and boy, it's depressing. Yeah. I got to tell you. And there are a lot of nominations um, for these categories that have grown over the years, but not a lot of wins. Yeah. Which, you know, there's lots of ways to frame that, but... Yeah, it's, uh, we're getting there, you know, we're working on it. And uh, I found this to be very inspiring to kind of see the way in which these women have prevailed, despite it being difficult and being viewed as something that is not essential and not as important. Mm -hmm. So if you want to check out that project, I found it to be really amazing and really inspiring. It's called Edited By. You can Mm. just Google that and then it will come up and it's a, a database that you can look through or search through if you are interested. Hmm, Very cool. So at the end of the show, we like to thank the Academy for things relating to these films or these topics or this year in film. What would you like to thank the Academy for today, Kristen? Well, the first thing I would like to thank the Academy for is, and I'm going to forget their names, but the two Japanese bird trainers. that came- I, I could not find their names anywhere. You did? Okay. I didn't think you said it. Yeah. I could. Okay. I looked so hard for their names and Our, I just could not oh, find them. Lost to history. Yeah. Sorry about that, my friends. I am thanking the Academy for them though. Yeah. Because dang. That is a hard job. I would lose my mind if I was trying to keep control over 300 birds. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, and I was just like watching this and imagining like being on set and like how smelly it would have been. Oh man. Like how much they would have just been pooping all over the place. Yeah. All the bird seed. Yeah. They uh yeah. It would have been a nightmare. It's amazing that Burt Lancaster heard this story and saw like, oh, he had three hundred birds. I wanna do that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't want to be around three hundred birds. <laughs> I will uh, pivot off of that and thank the Academy again for animals in films. Huzzah, we love them. So in addition to you thanking the Academy for the trainers, thanks to the birds. <laughs> and their pea-sized brains. It was so odd. Like there were definitely some bird puppets that were used at different times. Uh, where like, sure. Especially for like dead birds. Like, uh-huh, yeah. They didn't kill birds. To, well, like... or you can't train a bird to play dead. Right. But... The birds were so cute and like yeah. there were so many because it was sort of like documentary-ish, there were a lot of just like B-roll of birds just kind of like dancing around and doing their bird thing and like singing their songs. And that was pretty fun. Like there was a probably minute long shot of a bird being hatched or hatching itself. <laughs> Which was like, I don't know how you say that. (laughs) That was really interesting because I don't know that I've ever really just seen like a full like a bird birth bird birth. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, so that was interesting. Just a little tiny baby bird hatching. Oh, that's cute. Um, So yeah, it was cool. Thanks for the birds. Yeah, we love animals. (laughs) I would like to thank the Academy for everyone but the director. (laughs) (laughs) and the actors forget about them too everybody who works so hard to make movies what they are i mean well and uh, think about this birdman one they like reshot the whole thing mostly because the director was not happy that he did not have (gasps) creative control i yep yep yep. (laughs) we've talked about a lot of directors on this podcast very highly so now is our time to bash them because we're sick of it And we want some acclaim to go to everybody else who works so hard. And, you know, it's just so sad because you think of all the things that go into making a movie great. And right now we're talking about film editing. But there's so many other things that are, you know, part of all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. And who cares about them? Not many people except the people who do it. Yeah. But you'll care about it if it's bad. Yes. If a movie is edited poorly, you know it right away. Oh, yeah. Or you blame the actors or the director or Mm -hmm. something. And so, like, if those directors and actors want to look good, they need good editors. They need good sound designers. They need, you know, all these things. Tis true. And uh, final thanks for me is to Burt Lancaster, who just is a film lover. We love a film lover. Yeah. I just am so impressed with people like him who have a really great acting career and they make a lot of money and then they're like, you know what? This is not like satisfying my creative itch as much as I wanted it to. I want to, you know, have a production company and put my money back into the industry and hire other people and like make more creatively fulfilling things. I mean, I'm sure it gets old, like him being in a, like a role like from here to eternity (laughs) where he's like basically in a bathing suit the whole time and like you know he gets popular because of stuff like that yeah but yeah I think that's one of my favorite things for actors to do is to play the game and do what they have to do so that they can do what they want to do yeah 
I mean, that's the way you have to do it. And mm-hmm. I'm proud of him. I'm not proud of who cares what I think of it. But like, I'm happy for him that he was able to accomplish this and then do these things that are not just like meaningful to him, but meaningful to the public too. I mean, he's making cool things. And also he's being very innovative in the ways in which he's marketing and producing mm-hmm. and running his company and working with United Artists and all these things that are very exciting. Well, and uh, another thing I didn't really mention is this film takes place over like most like decades of this guy's life. Mm. Um, so he goes through a lot of like aging makeup and all of that. And he does really well. I was like, yes. I don't, I haven't watched a lot of his movies. And so like my main reference to him is from here to eternity. And he's like <laughs> fine in that one, but he was really good in this film. And yeah, like, did he's a, a good actor. Yeah. He did really well at yeah. like at everything that he needed to do, especially given the fact that all of those birds were in it. I can't imagine the like pains of working with hundreds of birds. <laughs> and there were lots of scenes of just him and birds. Oof. So anyways, well, that's the show. Thank you so much for joining us and join us, of course, next week when we discuss the 36th Academy Awards and the Best Picture winner, Tom Jones. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.